0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm delighted to be joined by two exciting guests. They're from the UK-based think tank Commonwealth, which works to design ownership models for a democratic and sustainable economy. Matthew Lawrence is Commonwealth's founder and director, and Adrian Buller is senior research fellow at Commonwealth. Together, they have written the wonderful new book, Owning the Future, Power and Property in an Age of Crisis. It comes out today from Verso, and I'm excited they're here to give us a sneak peek. Adrian, Matthew, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having
2: us. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Now,
0: for each of you, this is astoundingly the second book you've published during the pandemic. And so I thought maybe to help us get to know you as individuals before we get to know you as co-authors, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about those books. So maybe, maybe going in chronological order, Matthew, you published Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown, which was co-written with Laurie Layburn uh, with Verso back in the spring of 2021. What were you trying to do with that book?
2: Well, I was just you know
0: trying to keep myself occupied
2: during lockdown. <laughs> 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 um, no, I mean, so I guess the origin of that book was um, Laurie and I had been working at a, U- a UK think tank, not not Commonwealth, but a sort of major progressive think tank in the UK. And in that work, this you know this is kind of the origins in some ways of, sort of around 18 sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. We'd been speaking to. A lot of policymakers, a lot of, sort of, you know, sort of you know, people you'd expect, sort of, I guess, think tanks to be speaking to, civil servants, academics, you know, regulators. And while there was definitely a sense that you know, the climate and nature emergency was a big thing, nonetheless, there wasn't a real sense from many of these people, obviously from some, that actually, this was a you know, fundamental turning point in sort of human societies. That actually, we are living in the most stable environmental uh, sort of space we'll ever have, and that actually, sort of the years and decades ahead will be marked by mounting instability and feedback loops into our politics that are deeply disruptive and an egalitarian you know, on the sort of trajectory we're on. And obviously, and so the sort of spur for that was to sort of try and write a book, to sort of that you know really uh, sort of insisted that the crisis was political and therefore can be resolved by politics, but that also it was systemic in origin, but also in, in implication. And obviously, you know, during the writing of it, then sort of movements like the Green New Deal movement in the US and abroad erupted, kind of this anti-extractist movement in the Global South, you know, grew stronger and stronger. Uh, and, you know, I think sort of you know, the IPCC report and others, you know, striking you know, Fridays for Future Strikes, etc., kind of began to really mainstream some of that. Um, and in some ways, that was great because you know, the book kind of crested on that wave of activism, but it was really an attempt to say, like, to a lot of the audiences we've been working with on a sort of day-to-day level, this is a systemic crisis and, you know, politics, you know, has both produced but can, you know, challenge the drivers, attractive capitalism in our argument, to overcome the environmental and nature emergency.
0: That's great. And we'll see how this book picks up on that one. Um, But first, Adrian, your first book put out by Manchester University Press hit shelves just last month. And it's called The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism. What will readers find in there?
1: Yeah, so I came to that um, through, prior to joining Commonwealth, where I should say, actually, I'm now Director of Research, not a senior fellow, but you wouldn't know that it's it's a very recent recent change, so not your fault. Um, I used to work sort of in a civil society group that uh, tried to basically advise the financial sector on how they could align their activities better with uh, kind of the targets established in the Paris Agreement. And that was all kind of fine and well, but I sort of became... Uh, quite cynical uh, as I kind of started to understand the actual sort of mechanics and the sort of incentive structures underlying that kind of process and and sort of how the financial system actually works and kind of shapes uh, our collective future. Um, And so the book, Value of a Whale, is really focused on understanding that kind of uh, system and that kind of mindset, but more broadly what I call um, green capitalism. And I'm sure we'll unpack that a bit on this uh, episode as well. But basically just sort of a set of trends that I was seeing where, you know, as opposed to Conventional outright denialism, you know, capital and the financial system are really moving towards finding ways to shape our response to the climate and nature crises in ways that serve their interests. And that is kind of the motivation of the value of a whale is trying to kind of climb inside their heads and understand what those motivations are, kind of a a know your enemy type approach, um, and sort of picking apart why uh, they're unlikely to kind of work and are quite likely to be distractions that kind of cement uh, injustices in the process.
0: Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so while you were busy with finishing these other projects, you somehow managed to write Owning the Future. So how did this book come together?
1: Yeah, so Matthew and I work together at Commonwealth. um, And what's interesting about Owning the Future is you can almost think of it as kind of the manifesto for our organization, (laughs) which is (laughs) um, effectively, you know, as you said in the beginning, we focus on um, designing different kind of Uh, models of ownership that can help us build a more democratic and sustainable economy. And obviously, that's quite a far reaching mission. Um, And so owning the future came out of that baseline and then prompted by sort of a confluence of crises that erupted at the start of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, Um, whether you were looking at what was happening in financial markets and the way that sort of massive asset price inflation wasn't reflected in sort of huge suffering on the ground, um, looking at sort of housing insecurity, at the nature of sort of vaccine nationalism and IP and all sort of all of these questions that arose um, out of the pandemic experience, uh, we felt it was quite a salient moment to talk about the way that sort of ownership uh, shapes our world and the way that these kind of crises uh, unfold and how we can sort of move past the current ownership regime that we have towards uh, sort of a much brighter future.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I told myself I wasn't going to use the word manifesto in this interview, but you started it. So the premise of this manifesto um, is that the, the common thread linking, again, not just these environmental crises that you've written about already, but, but also social and economic crises um, is what you call the, the organizing force of ownership in your words. So off the top here, could you help us start to see how this is true? Why, why is ownership such a crucial concept for understanding our world.
2: So, ownership is a way of organising exclusive claims against the world, whether that's materials, resources, you know, sort of uh, institutional claims, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And throughout sort of human history, you know, in all types of society, how property relations, how you know, how possession is organised, how authority that flows from that is then sort of you know, distributed and dispensed with, it's fundamental. Um, so, you know, you can go back to sort of feudal land uh, ownership patterns and how that then sort of was, you know, the necessary sort of driver of feudal patterns of economic relations. And then obviously under capitalism, you know, sort of ownership is fundamental in sort of a huge range of ways. But I guess in sort of two dynamics that are fundamental to sort of you know, capitalist expansion. So one sort of exploitation in that classic sense of wage labour, the majority of us have to sort of sell our labour uh, to live, to sort of create an income, and that's because we've been dispossessed because the means of production are exclusively controlled and how they are used are determined by the owners of the means of production of capital. So, you know, we can't just be like, right, I'm going to go to the bread factory and make myself a bread, I've got to, you know, sell sell my labour to get an income to go sort of buy the bread. And so that act of dispossession, you know, forces that exploitation which labour – mixed with sort of society and nature creates value but that value is directly controlled and sort of extracted for the benefit of the owners of capital So ownership it's a sort of fundamental driver of inequality but also the organization of production and then a dual dynamic which kind of nests behind and enables that exploitation is Sort of expropriation on a vast scale, uh, so that is through enclosure, through violent means of dispossession. Um, you know, that can be anything from land enclosure and land seizures, um, which the book touched upon that sort of Adrian's uh, Daniel Wales sort of touched upon a lot around sort of, um, you know, sort of land grabbing by you know, global corporate uh, corporations, of global north, through to the expropriation of sort of unwaged uh, care, through to sort of you know, the enclosure of intellectual property and data. And all of these things kind of are sort of the hydraulic forces that sort of uh, concentrate and extract uh, wealth or extract and then concentrate wealth from labor, from nature, from society towards, you know, a sort of thin layer of ownership past. So you know, those are two sort of hydraulic forces. I think these sort of complicating Sort of thing which makes ownership interesting. I mean, not just the only reason. But I think you know, I think one of the sort of interesting things is you know we look at our world of vast inequalities rooted in who has claims on ownership, who owns versus who works, and you think, well, that is so extreme. The inequalities, the sort of injustices that produces the, the inefficiencies that generate. Surely there'll be a buckling point. But I think the way that you can kind of think through how the sort of politics of the last few decades has kind of Worked out is by thinking through that there's been a sort of devil's bargain in which a you know a big slice of society, albeit sort of small wealth, have been allowed access to assets, asset ownership particularly housing, but also sort of small scale pension wealth, and in exchange for that small access to sort of ownership of assets, the return has been like right, well you've got to accept essentially stagnant or falling real wages, cuts to social security, cuts to welfare, and there's been that sort of asset inflation, wage stagnation dynamic. Which, you know, the politics that can only really be thought through when we think about who is included, who is excluded through ownership of assets. And so really, whether it's about the organisation of our economy, the sort of economic and social relations that flow from that, the political coalitions and political economy of Anglo-American capitalism, you know, you can't really understand that. and You certainly can't understand you know, the climate crisis without thinking through how property relations kind of embed certain you know, sort of relations into human societies. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And let's let's dig deeper there because I mean you talked about the way that you you the book bounces back and forth between, you know, feudal times and, and, and past and present and before it starts to look toward the future. And in a couple of those transformations, historical transformations that you really um, come back to time and again are, are Um, What you label the the rise of the rentier and then the construction of an economy that's really based around not production, but around appreciating appreciating assets, as you're saying here. And so these, you know, rentier assets, appreciating assets, these are terms that will be, of course, very familiar to some listeners and then kind of new and forbidding for others who will be like, well, ah. And so um, I wonder if you could give us a quick crash course on, on, on what these words are and how they fit into that historical transformation.
2: Yeah, of course. And, you know, rent and renterism are in some ways you know, deeply contested. And so, you know, it depends in some ways what sort of like school or politics school of thought you're coming from. But certainly we approach it in the sense of um, authors like Brett Christopher's, for example, in which sort of the ownership of assets uh key types of assets um that are actively made scarce or you know maybe naturally scarce but are normally actively made scarce by law by property rules etc that then generate wealth for the few who hold that so you can think of intellectual property that encloses digital platforms. You can think of natural resources and the sort of like the control that uh, oil and gas companies have through owning those assets. You can think of land uh, most classically. You can think of in some ways, you know, sort of the, um, the modern corporation as a sort of, you know, sort of a scarce asset, you know, control of who has claims on shareholding, etc., etc., uh, as a way of generating flows of income, stocks of wealth. And That pattern of renterization, you know, is typically associated with, well, A, ownership. Ownership is fundamental to it. Who owns what, you know, structures, flows of income, flows of wealth or stocks of wealth. But it's also associated with economic stagnation. Um, so really, you know, our the global economy has been marked by systemic slowdown. If you look at it over sort of you know sort of the long durée, over sort of uh, de- decades long histories of slowdown in investments, slowdown in profitability, slowdown in sort of you know economic dynamism, and in some ways that's related to the fact that it's safer to sweat your assets rather than invest in you know new production. Uh, it's safer to maximise returns on what you have rather than risking stepping out into the new. Now, that's obviously not entirely true. Production is still fundamental to uh, the economy and generation of value. But again, where does that value flow to? It flows to those who own rather than those who work predominantly. Um, so, you know, um and the UK in some ways is particularly extreme, not least because mass privatization of assets like land infrastructure energy systems housing has produced this you know this vast um sort of coalition um which helps you know unpick both the inequality of the UK, but also kind of sort of some of the coalitions that seem on the surface a little confusing around it across class coalitions you know sort of demographic coalitions um but really of so that renterization that is you know, endemic to much of, of uh, Anglo American capitalist sort of societies, um, that can't be explained without thinking through how property relations structure our economies.
0: Thank you. That's really helpful. And I appreciate you doing that for us. Um, if, if the book has a main character, it's probably the corporation. Um, and while most readers will not be surprised by your portrayal of um, corporations as villainous or, or engines of extraction in the name of the chapter about corporations in the book, I think many might be surprised that you are, you're not calling for the strict abolition of corporations. It's not in that way. It's more nuanced than that. And you rather you call for more of a reimagining of corporations. So what, what is salvageable about the corporation in the modern world?
1: Yes. So, you know, one of the reasons that we focus on um, the corporation, I mean, it's quite a familiar baddie, I'm mm-hmm. sure, <laughs> a lot of sort of books, critical of capitalism. Um, you know, there's two elements to that, one of which is that, you know, it remains kind of the major coordinating force of the global economy. There's there's no denying that. So you kind of have to have an analysis of the corporation to understand the way that particular forms of ownership shape the global economy. Um Additionally, through what I would say is the supporting actor of the kind of asset management industry as well, sort of corporate shareholding has this sort of very important and salient structuring role in the rise of the kind of asset economy and sort of rentierism that Matthew just described. Um, And I think one of the things that we do is try and understand, you know, based on the fact that they are such an impressive and kind of enormous coordinating force that can, you know, do some things very effectively if quite unjustly in their current arrangement to try to understand what uh, about the corporation can, can be salvaged. And we should say, you know, this isn't sort of a new line of inquiry or insight, particularly, you know, this goes back to, to Marx who talks about, you know, the abolition of the capitalist mode of production within the capitalist mode of production itself. And there are sort of two elements there to the corporate form um, that are sort of key to what could be salvageable about it, this kind of embryonic potential for it to do something that is, you know, positive in terms of meeting, you know, human and societal and environmental need rather than being sort of oriented towards just massive extraction of, of profit. And one is the kind of separation of ownership and sort of control that happens when um, the corporation kind of grows Uh, in lockstep with the rise of sort of financial markets and sort of shareholding and stock markets. So now, you know, the owners of the corporation technically are, you know, shareholders who have, I suppose, an entitlement to sort of profits derived from the corporation, entitlement to kind of future income streams but they're not actually the owners of the means of production itself, which belong to the corporate body within that kind of specific uh, legal archetype. And the actual activity of enterprise, you know, has nothing to do with the shareholder themselves. Uh, You know, you've got sort of managers controlling that and then you have workers doing the actual production. And so it's kind of this separation of various elements of what in kind of old-timey imaginaries of yore would have been the capitalist who kind of owns and engages an enterprise as a unit and kind of separates all of those. Um, and so quite an interesting uh, question arises from that, which is, you know, what is the justification for the shareholder and for the owner um, who currently do, you know, very little other than just kind of extract value from the corporate, the corporate form? Um, and the second kind of insight into what could be salvageable and how we can disrupt the corporation comes from the very kind of simple uh, observation. And it wasn't just Marx who observed this, but also, you know, John Maynard Keynes has some comments on this that are quite interesting, which is the tendency of, you know, enterprise, and this is borrowing from Keynes, to socialize itself insofar as, you know, again, the separation of ownership and control, but also just the kind of uh conglomeration of small businesses into ever larger kind of uh coordinated productive uh enterprise um which again is a form of kind of socialization of production and and of planning so there are kind of two seeds there of things that you know could be changed about the corporation or things that could be kind of harnessed to reorient it uh, towards serving uh, broader goods. And I'll turn over to Matthew in case he has any any follow-up thoughts there on what we specifically propose, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I guess a couple of things. I mean, I think one, we're really trying to stress sort of the political and social roots of the corporation and also its origins in very violent histories of colonialism and extractivism and enclosure which you know the modern the modern heirs to the sort of you know uh, corporate form very much continue that tradition. But I think we really sort of do try and stress that sort of you know, the social the plastic uh, nature of the corporate form uh, because I think many of the sort of I guess the defenders of the status quo will typically kind of appeal to like a naturalized vision of like well that's just you know that's just how things are the company just operates like this, whereas actually you know it is created by politics in the sense of political and social institutions undergird its powers. Legal privileges, you know, extraordinary legal privileges allow its expansive ability to coordinate labour and capital for production. And obviously much of that production today is geared towards not meeting of social and environmental needs, but sort of the maximisation of uh, wealth for investors. But nonetheless, we think it is obviously in some ways a bit of a gambit, as you say, you know, you know, We sort of expose its limits in the current form, but don't necessarily say we should abolish the corporation. But there's a gambit, I guess, there to say like embryonic in its potential, due to the reasons Adrian sort of articulated, you can recover the sort of sociality of the corporation. The fact that it's kind of the, the original public private partnership in a way, it's something that, you know, sort of is not, you know, pre-social, it's not sort of, you know, spontaneous market ordering in a sort of like Hayekian, Hayekian sense. Um, so so in that sense, you know, given the tasks ahead of us around you know, decarbonisation, equity, of, of you know, reparative decarbonisation, etc, etc, as an institution of planning or production of organisation, but one that currently is laced through with you know, relations of hierarchy and of domination and the absence of democracy, you know, can we through thinking through ownership, through thinking through control reimagine it and that's you know, what sort of the, the chapters on the corporation sort of articulate
0: Thanks yeah let's let's start to look toward the future um, And the book I should remind people that the book is wide-ranging it treats housing and intellectual property and the care economy and other really urgent topics. but for the purpose of this program new books and environmental studies, let's drill down into an exploration of, of environmental crises that you take up. Um, and when it comes to climate, you sort of take as a given the role of, of capitalism in, in various forms in, in and creating the crisis. And instead, you really spend the time in the book laying out how, how uh, prioritizing private ownership keeps generating ineffective solutions. So why should we be skeptical or, or even outright opposed to things like offsets and net zero pledges?
1: Yeah, this is, you know, a phenomenon that I talk about a lot in in the other book that we mentioned, The Value of a Whale as well, which is kind of what is the the approach of capital to responding to what is an unprecedented kind of threat to its ability to kind of reproduce itself and a threat to profits and sort of returns. Um, And, you know, the way that I suppose I identify Um, the response to that is to find a way to, uh, in theory, decarbonize or somehow kind of arrive at a more sustainable economic system that does as much as possible to avoid kind of disrupting existing kind of economic institutions, ways of organizing production, you know, distributions of wealth and power. So basically try and kind of batten down the hatches on our existing system while somehow uh, imagining that you can do so well while kind of decarbonizing. And so, you know, net zero pledges and, and offsets are kind of a perfect distillation of that. Um, you know, for from a global perspective, you know, that's the only way in which net zero kind of makes sense. You know, what we should be doing is trying to, yeah, eliminate global emissions, you know, as far and quickly as possible with kind of this little leftover of, you know, residual drawdown where it's absolutely necessary. Whereas, you know, The corporate kind of seizure of that to say, you know, we are going to do uh, we are going to do corporate net zero in some way um, is really kind of smoke and mirrors for uh, that strategy of trying to, again, do as little to actually change your operations uh, as possible while kind of creating this this veneer of action. And, you know, net zero and offsets at that level are, you know, there are lots of reasons we should be skeptical. Some of which, you know, I'm sure many listeners to environmental studies books will know, you know, there's simple questions of kind of methodology, right? So questions around materiality, which is, you know, does this actually do anything? Additionality, you know, would this have happened anyways? permanence you know there's it seems like it's it's both kind of joyful and horrifying the number of stories that seem to be rolling out every summer of you know offset plantations kind of going up in flames um so obviously you know methodological questions are there but more fundamentally i guess from the perspective of ownership which we focus on is that you know offsets generally involve this kind of new form of enclosure of the commons, um, whether that's the atmospheric commons, insofar as a corporation might say, I'm going to keep emitting, which is enclosing a portion of our atmospheric commons, insofar as you know, we have a limited resilience of the climate to carbon emissions. Um, they're going to continue enclosing that commons while also finding new ways to enclose you know, land, for the purposes of sustaining uh, demands for consumption and emissions broadly in the global north and among the comparatively globally wealthy. And so that's sort of this new frontier of, yeah, resolving or attempting to address the climate crisis in a way that creates minimal disruption for a system that is serving capital quite well um, through finding new ways to kind of own and enclose Uh, land and the atmosphere kind of privately. And so beyond the simple kind of methodological questions, which are very important, you know, that is an element of this to be, you know, very wary of. And, you know, Matt referred to that already, but, you know, there are many groups like ActionAid who kind of track uh, land grabs related to carbon offsets and biofuels, um, you know, and it's kind of millions of hectares already kind of involved uh, in those systems. And, you know, there's always this kind of appeal to uh, sort of rational self-interest to try and say oh you know this land rather than being common or public would be much better managed in the kind of self-interest of private ownership um and i guess the book tries to push back against that strongly um and i'll just you know reference one piece of evidence that we use which is there's a review of i think it's like eighty thousand land purchases that was published in nature um which found that you know in the overwhelming majority Uh, exclusive private purchases, whether that was, you know, by foreign states or whether by private companies um, tended to result in hugely accelerated deforestation, biodiversity loss and, you know, negative impacts for for communities. So the kind of justification that as well that, you know, through private ownership offsets might actually improve conservation also kind of falls apart and points us towards a governance model based around kind of collective ownership and governance, which we kind of advocate for uh, in the book.
0: Yeah, and like, and, and like offsets and net zero pledges, um, many cheer the explosive growth of electric vehicles as a hopeful sign that new technology and private industry and supportive governments and enlightened consumers can can together decarbonize the economy. And it certainly is a centerpiece of the Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden signed last week. Um, and it was to have these subsidies to get people to buy more uh, EV cars. Um, to you in this book, they are evidence of, in your words, the inherent unattainability and unsustainability of green capital capitalism why is that
1: yeah so yeah as i mentioned you know green capitalism sells this idea that you know not only do we not need to change very much about the way that we currently organize our societies and our economies and our lives whether that's in you know distributions of wealth or the way we get around with evs as an example there it also suggests not only that that's viable but that that's somehow desirable and to me kind of EVs are the perfect encapsulation of that falsehood, right? Which is that, you know, well, I think to, a, to an extent, you know, we absolutely need electric vehicles, they are a distraction from much deeper questions around uh, modes of transport, questions about mobility that don't involve kind of private autonomous ownership and vehicles. And this huge kind of monopolization of space by private cars Um, not least because you know the demand for lithium and other kind of minerals associated with projections from you know the IEA is a good example the International Energy Agency you know they have projections of demand for lithium growing 40-fold within the next 20 or so years over current levels which are already you know quite high levels of extraction as EVs start to kind of explode in popularity and you know, there are massive implications of that, again, for kind of sovereignty related to communities around, uh, you know, lithium lines, it's a hugely kind of environmentally damaging and water intensive process. Um, and again, this is kind of a strategy of enclosing commons or restricting the sovereignty of others kind of elsewhere out of sight, in order to maintain arrangements of kind of private ownership and private uh, mobility that we have in broadly the global north without thinking about other ways that we could sort of collectively own transport or move around in a much more sort of shared public transport style way. Um, And again, it's something that relates to the question of whether these systems of private ownership are even desirable. So that, you know, that speaks to the viability question. But again, there's this sense that, you know, giving up our sort of private ownership of vehicles is something that is going to be hard and that implies, you know, lack and making our lives worse. And, you know, absolutely, there are parts of the world in which many parts where public transit is very substandard and that needs to be addressed and that, you know, could be harmful for people. But a lot of the time, you know people don't even enjoy their cars. So there's a really great study that came out recently that, you know, voluntarily giving away your private car, not because of need, because you couldn't afford it, but voluntarily, um, like statistically significantly improved happiness across the study. Um, People were less stressed. People were happier. They found different ways to get around. And so I think we should call into question this adherence we have ideologically to the idea that private kind of ownership and control is always something that will you know, make us happier and be more popular. Um, and yeah, I think that to me speaks to the relevance of ownership in this kind of framework of green capitalism. And yeah, you pulled out a great example. I think EVs really, really capture it.
0: <laughs> I, I just had some tension with my neighbors over parking spots and I hate myself. So I, I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, um, moving to the book's concluding chapter, um, you lay out three, what you call horizons of ambitions for revolutionizing ownership. The first, which is about democratizing production, returns to some of the ideas of, of reforming corporations that we spoke about earlier. Um, but you warn that even democratically controlled corporations, kind of going back to more shareholder democracy, could um, reproduce inequalities, as you say, um, that we suffer from today. So you say we must pair this with redistributing corporate wealth and income and, and point to the late economist James Mead's ideas of, of a social wealth fund. How would that
2: work? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think this is almost a paradox in that when it comes to democratizing production, we're almost saying that we should de-stress the power of ownership or at least sort of as corporate ownership is currently organized. I mean, as Adrian mentioned, sort of there's this kind of illusion of well, shareholders own the corporation, whereas of course, what shareholders own is shares which have claims on the corporation's sort of cash flow and sort of governance rights attached to it. But the corporation actually organizes production, you know, owns owns the assets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in some ways, what you know, and it was sort of like tongue in cheek but in some ways not sort of talking about like abolish the stock market abolish the claims of capital markets on the productive capacity um, of the firm and release the sort of potential to do things that aren't necessarily you know disciplined into you know companies can do lots of exciting things and entrepreneurship can be really creative and innovative but often it's disciplined by financial markets and owners into doing you know, sort of you know, narrowly, you know, extractive or sort of uh, not necessarily socially useful things. So, um, which is by way of saying, so if you sort of democratise production and kind of release it from, you know, release, you know, production from the control of you know, an ownership class and their sort of managerial agents, and allow, you know, almost these you know, democratised corporations to emerge, that's fantastic. But then you could get a situation where it's like, you know, workers at Alphabet are suddenly sort of, you know, sort of getting an extraordinary amount of money. Now, obviously, you can sort of, um, you know, challenge some, you know, redistribute some of that through through taxation, etc. But the social wealth fund point um, would be to say, well, actually, like, you know, ultimately all value is sort of socially created, you know, sort of um, you know, capitalist production relies on social reproduction, which relies on sort of ecological relations underpinning it. Um, and of course, of how, you know, reward is sort of generated and flows through the, and this particular economy flows through it. obviously very much structured by ownership very much structured by sort of patriarchal, and racialized and gendered fault lines so something like a social wealth fund would kind of insert a sort of guaranteed income claim on the sort of productive capacity of corporations that may well be democratized and may well be kind of you know much more directly controlled by and for the people who work in those companies but ultimately those corporate forms and their sort of family tree of companies within them these are still like embedded in society embedded in you know sort of you know the work the unpaid work of care that enables you know people to go to work every day etc etc and so, so the social wealth would say like actually you know we should all have a claim on that wealth yeah we all contribute um and it would be a sort of mechanism a counterweight against inequality because the sort of gains of production would be distributed you know and socialized essentially and so we'd all have a claim on sort of product of society rather than as currently structured where it's structured by who has power and power is often very much who who owns assets who owns you know financial wealth gets the bigger share of the pie so it's about saying you know we need to not just kind of reimagine the pie we need to redistribute it
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and if i can just quickly add on there we almost find a way to not contradict ourselves in the book, but I suppose we have this section on sort of sequential policy proposals and solutions. So, you know, you could start with democratic reforms within the corporation and then kind of scale up a social wealth fund. And then, you know, we also have a provocation that says, you know, ultimately a social wealth fund that, you know, might invest in existing kind of publicly listed corporations, for example, would still have a role in kind of keeping the corporation adhering to the kind of disciplining force of financial markets and the kind of imperatives of financial ownership and shareholding. And so subsequent to our social wealth fund proposal, we also kind of have a bit of a cheekier section on, you know, effectively, as we call it, abolishing the stock market, (laughs) which we don't quite say, um, but we do kind of fundamentally call into question Yeah, the kind of justification, as we referenced in our conversation before, for having governance rights attached to attached to shareholding uh, at all, given that, you know, a lot of the time these are shares exchanging hands between investors on secondary markets and, frankly, not doing much to Add new investment to the corporation itself, um, other than maybe driving some different, sh- like fr- some small fluctuations in share price, basically. Um, and so, beyond the social wealth fund, we also want to fundamentally question, you know, what is the justification for having financial markets retain discipline over the corporation and kind of try to shape where that product goes and and who it helps and benefits.
0: Thanks. Yeah, and and, and um, the the tone of the book is aspirational, as any good manifesto should be. Um, and you're looking out to the horizon. You also note several places in the world um, where the revisioning of ownership um that you call for is already underway um and delivering on its promise. Could we can um we can maybe wrap up here by, by hearing about a couple of those places and what you think we can learn from them?
2: Sure, absolutely. So I think um... I mean, I think the beauty of ownership it operates at multiple scales. And so you can look at things like in the UK, the sort of public commons partnership um, movement, which is this sort of a commoning-based approach to how assets in urban communities are owned, governed, controlled, and for who. And so actually just up the road from uh, where we both live in North London, there's a sort of community-based plan to sort of transform assets, which are currently kind of, which have been kind of reclaimed from development by... Um, very financialized, very extractive uh, developers into community control of the assets and it's kind of trying to be placed into a sort of commons-based approach um, with a market, with housing, with social care, childcare attached to it. So I think, you know, you can look at this as like the granular uh, and then you can sort of scale up to, you know, something that's dominating um, you know, conversation everywhere, which is obviously sort of like inflationary pressures. And you can look to somewhere like France, which... Um, In the UK, we're seeing surging um, energy prices, uh, really extraordinary, um, painful, um, socially catastrophic price uh, increases. And if you look across the the channel um, to France, EDF, which is its main sort of uh, energy producer and supplier, is uh, publicly owned. 84% is moving towards full nationalisation. And through that flexibility, through that ability to prioritize things other than we must maximize returns, which is the sort of alpha and omega of you know, the privately owned for-profit corporation, through that, EDF have been able to say, right, okay, we're going to, and through the government, have been able to say, right, we're going to hold price rises to 4% this year, which is just an extraordinary difference. As so you can kind of see from the sort of granular and the grassroots of kind of like experimental, pluralistic, you know, Institutional reforms around how housing and land and sort of that interplay and sort of um, urban ecologies is developing through to sort of, you know, really the sort of, you know, the metabolic heights of capitalism. How is energy organised and produced and at what cost and who bears the cost of innovation, where you can see public ownership as this tool um, in a very practical sense for charting quite different futures.
0: Thanks. And and after putting out three books in in a year, I hope what's next for you is a nap. Um, But are there any future projects that either of you or your colleagues at Commonwealth are working on that you're ready to give listeners a preview of?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we have lots on. If any of what we talked about today tickles the fancy of anyone listening, you know, these are things that we work on uh, all the time at Commonwealth. Um, And in particular, we'll be taking um, a much bigger focus towards Questions that Matt just raised there around uh, the future of kind of energy systems and ownership as a strategy for a more kind of just and equitable and sustainable in, in many senses of the word energy system. Um, also looking at something we touched on in the book around um, sort of the asset economy and asset manager capitalism. So the kind of forces of asset prices and asset ownership um, as driving imperatives in the economy and the kind of destructive impacts of that. So looking at how we can kind of address and get around that. Um, And additionally, we're doing some work on sort of land and community and sort of social value and how you can sort of retain that within communities rather than have systems around kind of outsourcing and private ownership that tend to destroy or extract that value um and so all sorts of themes i don't know if matt you have anything else on the on the back burner i'm unaware of (laughs)
2: Uh, no um i mean i think i guess one thing i guess particularly to your listeners uh is we'll be extending a lot of the analyses that adrian's I mentioned from a sort of UK perspective across a sort of transatlantic lens. So, looking at how some of the giants of asset manager capitalism, so BlackRock and others, how they've got this infrastructural power and what it means for sort of the American and indeed global economy. It's sort of we've done some work, but we'll be doing more work. For example, on you know, big oil in the US and how you know the ownership structure within those companies generates very particular patterns of investment, which are let's say, very detrimental to both the environment and, you know, the economic interests of ordinary working Americans. So again, a really exciting time, um, not least because the environment is so, like, destabilised and in crisis, but I think, you know, there's a sense that actually, and I think, I'm not quite sure what it's like in the US, but certainly in the UK, and I'm sure there will be some narrative here, there's a sense that actually, like, the sort of the fault lines and the, the cracks in the in the permafrost of you know the status quo that's been dominated dominant and dominating for the last you know, 30 40 years are really being exposed and that's an opportunity to mobilize around sort of you know counter alternatives and, and alternative visions for the future which you know in the book we try and sort of argue has to be built on if it's going to be durable and popular and transformative has to be built on transforming and democratizing ownership
0: Sounds thrilling. And the book, again, this one is Owning the Future, Power and Property in an Age of Crisis. Don't miss it. It comes out today from Verso and its authors. And my guests have been Adrian Bowler and Matthew Lawrence. But thank you both for your time and for this book.
1: Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.
2: (laughs) Thanks very much.